Genesis chapter 1. We'll read verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 3 here. This will be our sermon text. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 through 2, verse 3. Last week, of course, we looked in particular verses Genesis 1, 1 and 2. Tonight we'll really pick up at 1, 3, uh, but we'll read verses uh, starting with verse 1 here to get the whole chapter in view. This is God's Word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. So the evening and the morning were the second day. Then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. And let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth. And the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night. And let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Then God said, Let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves, with which the waters abounded according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image. According to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. 
in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth, and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. And Hebrews 4, verses 1 through 13. Hebrews 4, 1 through 13. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest. As he has said, so I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains that some must enter it. And those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, today, After such a long time, as it has been said, today, if you'll hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us, therefore, be diligent to enter that rest lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray together. Indeed, Lord, your word is living and powerful. By your word, you created everything. And by your word, O Lord, you have given us new life in the new creation in Christ. And now we ask that you would strengthen us and continue to give us life by your all-powerful word through the ministry of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. Last week we looked at verses 1 and 2 of Genesis 1, and we saw there that God is the great Creator, the Eternal One. He's there in the beginning before there's anything made. He's there. No one, nothing else exists. Not even nothingness exists. No space, no time, only God for all eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then, out of nothing, He creates by a word. He creates the whole universe with a word. We saw that He does this by His almighty power to create for Himself a temple, a place for Him, a palace for Himself to be the King. And He's making Himself a kingdom. And he's doing it without any competition, without any rivals, without any challengers, right? We saw these other religions around Israel. Their creation stories were full of rivals and challengers and conflict and chaos. But the Genesis account has none of that. It's just the Almighty God, the great architect. Not a battle here. Just God building himself a cosmic cathedral to his own glory. But as verse 2 ends there in Genesis uh, chapter 1, we're still waiting to see the details of God's creation formed, right? Verse 2 says that the world, this, that this, this earth that God has created, is without form and void, that it's unformed and it's unfilled. It's, it's not been shaped into its proper shape yet. It hasn't been filled with those things God intends to fill it with yet. It's there wrapped in water, sort of like an embryo, and the Spirit of God is hovering over it to nurture it, to, to bring this work of God to creation. And then God speaks, right? Verse 3, His all-powerful Word with His all-powerful Spirit, right? That's always how we see it in Scripture, His Word and His Spirit together. And here he speaks in verse 3, and he creates, creates this universe as his kingdom. And then he, after he forms this universe and fills this universe, he enters into his, his rest. Those are going to be our three headings as we work through this. First, he forms, verses one, uh, 3 through 13, he forms this universe. Then he fills it, verses 14 to 30. And then he rests in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. God forms, God fills, God rests. Before we dive into that, though, a brief word about the debate around Genesis 1. Um, Some people read Genesis 1 and say, well, it's not really telling us, um, it's it's not historical narrative at all. It's not really meant to be read as, as, as history. They might say it's meant to be read as theology, It'll teach you some true things about how powerful God is, but it's not meant to be read as a literal, historical account of how God created the world. What do we say to that? Well, we go to the Scripture and we read Genesis 1, and we notice that it is told as history. The author of Genesis, Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is not trying to write poetry in Genesis 1. He's not writing in figurative language. He's writing history. And he's using the standard form that Hebrew uses to write historical narrative is the exact form he's using here. In Hebrew, if you want to tell history... 
you do it with a, with a certain syntax, a certain word order and a certain sentence order. And you use what's called a viactole chain, right? These sentences that you put together in a particular order. And you can see it a bit reflected in the English. Every time it, has, uh, it says God said, God saw, God called, God said, God did, you see that rhythm throughout the chapter, right? That's one of those viactoles. This this orderly, sequential structure that the Hebrew is saying, this is a historical narrative. Nothing fancy about it, in a sense. You can't argue uh, with with, uh, the way it's written. Genesis 1 is self-consciously written as a straightforward historical account. So you can't can't say that this is uh, supposed to be interpreted um, mythologically or poetically or figuratively. It's history. Does this mean, then, that these are six literal 24-hour days? That's how I take it. Uh, that seems to me to be the most straightforward way to read the text. We always want to take Scripture on its own terms and, 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 and interpret it according to what it presents itself to be. And to me, that's the most straightforward way to read it. Now, of course, that says, well, what do you do with all the, the scientific Evidence that people hold out to say it's well. This isn't really. Uh, this isn't. You know. You can't. You can't have Genesis one as literal history and the scientific evidence that we have. So which is going to be? Well, first of all, we always start with Scripture as our authority. At the same time, we acknowledge God reveals truth about Himself in His world as well as His Word. But Scripture takes priority, and if Scripture clearly says this is what happened, then we start there. And we take those glasses and we put them on and then we go look at the evidence. And when you do that, some of the evidence might not look so contradictory after all. Could Genesis 1 be telling us that this is history, but there is something special about these days? Perhaps. Could they be analogous to our days, but not identical with them? Perhaps. I could see, I could see the text saying that. But what we can't do is say that there's um, macroevolution going on, theistic evolution going on, um, these, these sorts of things. There's no place at all for that in Genesis 1. Now, uh, there's a lot more we could say on this. Perhaps a lot more you wish I'd say or uh, more questions you have. And I'm happy to talk with it about it later uh, further on. But this is not the main point of the text. Um, it's not the concern of the text really. It's important to address, but um, the text is telling us something else. So let's turn now and give our full attention to what the text is telling us. So we are, uh, we're going to work through this in three headings, as I said. Uh, number one is God forms. And this is verses 3 to 13. First, God forms this world. So right, verse 2 starts out, says the world is without form. Now we see days one through three of the creation week, God takes that which was without form and he forms it. Um, he brings shape. He brings order. He takes, he takes what was unformed and he gives it form. And he, and he forms it into three spheres or three, three kingdoms, we could call them. Three realms that he's, that he's building, right? Day one, he creates night and day, right? The, the, the heavens. And day, day two, he, he separates the ocean and the sky. Day three, he creates dry land and causes plants to grow in it. So he's, he's forming these, these three spheres or realms. And then on the next three days, 
He's going to correspondingly fill each one with creatures. How does he do this? How does God form here? Well, verse 3 says he speaks. Let there be light, verse 3 says. And immediately there's light. This is repeated over and over in the chapter that God creates by speaking his all-powerful word. That his word creates. That, that he is just commanding, right? He's just issuing these commands like a sergeant to his troops and they do it, right? That's how God commands the universe and it happens, Just like that. Instantaneous. The work is done. And the glorious thing about the account here is how there are no obstacles to his work. I don't know how it goes for you when you set out to work on a project, but there is always some obstacles for me. Not for the Lord. He speaks and it's done. It's just perfect. Right? He's a genius at his work. All-powerful word, perfectly accomplishing everything he wants done, happens exactly the way he wants it done. Right? He's commanding, and you can, you can just kind of try to picture the scene, it's mind-boggling. Right? He says, let there be light, and there's light flooding the universe. And he, he says, he separates the sky from, uh, right, the firmament above from, from the waters below. What would that look like to see, to see the atmosphere being lifted into place, just like that, at, at his command? Or to see the mountains being brought up from the ocean just by His Word. Do you recognize, brothers and sisters, His Word still just as powerful? His power is just as real. Now, we look at the world around us and we see the, the glories of His creation, the, the stars, the, the, the vast galaxies, and the, just the, the incomprehensible largeness of space and then the minute details of just the littlest thing in, in, in this earth. And, and all of it is there by His power. It's all there because He told it to be there and to have the form it has. Everything is under His power. And the point here in Genesis 1 for us is that we marvel at His power and that we trust His power. The God who made that is my God. And He cares for me. We can trust Him. We can trust His strength. His Word still carries that power, doesn't it? His Word which created, His Word is now upholding the universe. Right? His Word set it all in motion and His Word keeps it in motion. Hebrews 1.3 says that the eternal Son upholds all things by His all-powerful Word, keeping it, sustaining it. Time has not worn down the power and effectiveness of, of His Word. And also we should, we should notice here, as we see God speaking and creating, forming this universe by His, by his Word, we should note that um, His Word to us in the new creation is just as powerful, isn't it? Right? In, 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 uh, just like in the first creation, God's Word brings something out of nothing. So in the new creation, he speaks where there's death and he brings life, right? There's the darkness of our souls in sin, in slavery to sin, and he's, God speaks by his all-powerful word. And then there's life and light and salvation. Paul says this, doesn't he? 2 Corinthians 4.6 makes the same comparison. He says, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Right? We're dead in sin. 
dark in our sin. And the word of the gospel comes, and the Holy Spirit comes hovering over us, just like he was over that first creation. And, and life comes by the sovereign power of the almighty word of God. And that's what also not only starts us in the Christian life, but keeps us in it. His, his powerful word sustaining us, just as his word sustains the galaxies and the molecules. His word sustains our faith and our life in Christ. This is what we see in Genesis 1. God's word forms the world. His almighty, powerful word creates. He doesn't only say things here to create, though. If you notice in the text, he also speaks to name things, doesn't he? After God has created the light, he names it. And then he names the darkness, right? He calls the light day, he calls the darkness night. What does it mean to name something? When you name something, you have authority over it. Um, children don't name their parents. Their parents name the children. Um, you, you don't, your, your pet doesn't name you. You name your pet, right? That's where the authority structure runs. Ch- uh, grandchildren uh, sometimes name their grandparents, right? Because that's the way the authority structure runs. Uh, but with the, the, when you name something, you say, I have ownership over this. I own this, and, and I have authority over this. God... Naming the creation is claiming sovereignty over it. Right? He's saying, this is, this is my world that I've created. I'm, I'm the king over this creation. We see this in Psalm 24, verses 1 to 2. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he's founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Everything belongs to him. He's made it. He's named it. It's his. It's not ours. It's his. He gives us dominion over it, but it's a stewardship. It's still his. He still owns it. Everything we are, everything we have, belongs to him. And we're under his authority. So God forms the world in these first three days. He forms these three spheres. He does it by his power, by his word. And he names what he creates and claims sovereignty over it. Then he fills it. He forms the world, days one to three. And then he fills each of these three uh, realms that he's created on days four to six. So let's turn now to our second heading, which is God fills, verses 14 to 30. So days four to six correspond to days one to three. There's a a really nice ordering of these days. Obviously, in God's providence, it unfolded this way to show a a beautiful uh, orderliness to it and a a creativity to it. So day one, God creates the heavens corresponding. Day four, he creates the sun and the moon and places them in the heavens to rule over them. Now, interestingly, if you're following along and you look there, where God creates the sun and the moon. He doesn't call them the sun and the moon. He simply calls them the greater light and the lesser light. Um, doesn't name them. Other religions named the sun and the moon as their gods. Uh, the Egyptians worship the sun. The Babylonians study the stars. Uh, but, but, but Genesis 1, right, Moses is saying to Israel, none of that. There's just the greater light and the lesser light made by God uh, to serve, not to, not, not to be... Uh, uh, not to be gods of any kind. They're not divine. They're given as servants to man, not masters. So that's day, that's day four. Then um, 
God goes on in day five, and he fills the ocean and the sky. This corresponds to day two. God, on day two, separated the waters below from the waters above, and now he's filling them. He fills the sky with birds, and he fills the, the uh, ocean with sea creatures. Notably, again, we see this note of a polemic here running through Genesis chapter 1 as, as verse 21 singles out these giant, these, these great sea creatures. Um, the other terms that it uses are generic terms for the creatures God is making here. But in verse 21, the Hebrew word is a very particular word for this great sea creature. Um, it's, it's a word uh, that can be translated as a serpent or a dragon, right? A, a sea monster. Right? And in Canaanite religion, um, the main enemy of the god Baal is this, this serpent, this sea monster, right? And this is, this is the, 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 the enemy of, of the god in Canaanite religion. And uh, it is as though God is saying to his people here, he's highlighting for us his superiority. Oh, yeah, that's just another one of my creatures, not a rival, something I made to display my glory, showing that he alone is the great creator and the only God and Baal is just a false God and, and reminding Israel, don't, don't trust the other gods of the other nations. All right, and then, then on day six, God creates land creatures, right? Uh, so on day three, he created the dry land. On day six, he fills the dry land with creatures. First, the animals, livestock, wild animals, all other creatures, the creeping things it talks about, uh, the wildlife. Um, then he creates man. Now, man's creation is clearly set apart here, isn't it? There's something about it related to the other creatures uh, because it happens in the same day. Man, too, is, is, a, is a creature of the land. Uh, but, but there's something that is, is very set apart, right? As God comes to create man, this is day six. This is the crowning moment of his creation, the great climax of the whole thing. And, and the narrator slows the action down for us to really stop and take stock of what's going on. Man is unique. Verse 27 says, man's created in God's image. This means that man is created as a king. He's created to have rule and authority, right? Uh, Meredith Klein says man's creation is his coronation, that he's made as God's image bearer, God's king, that God, God puts in place over this, this, this world that he's made. Psalm 8 reflects this as well, that to be made an image bearer of God is to reflect God's rule and authority, to be a king, ruling over the creation under God. The second thing it means to be created in, in the image of God, of course, is that as, as a king, you're to reflect the character of, 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 of the great king, the Lord. And man is created like this as well in, in God's image to reflect God's holiness and his righteousness. And to bear in himself the image of God in this way. Then, then in verse 28... God's, so God's created man in his image. Then verse 28, he speaks to his creation. All right, this, is, this, is, this is the first time that God has now turned to his creation and not, not spoken a word of command necessarily of uh, uh, you know, creating it, you know, let there be light and there is light. But now he turns to his image bearer and he speaks to him. And it's a word of blessing. He gives him a commission. Right? He's made man to be his representative. 
And now he gives them this commission. He gives them a blessing. Be fruitful and multiply. Right, Fill the earth and subdue it. He's saying, I've given you this earth. And I've given it to you so that you can go out and you can fill it with other image bearers who will worship and glorify me, who will reflect me, and who will extend my kingdom through the whole earth. That's, that's what God has given this. Uh, that's, that's the God-given task that the image bearer has, that we have. This is God's kingdom, like we've, like we've said, and God is filling the world with representatives of his kingdom to go out and claim it for him, reflect him in it, rule over him for it. And then God gives man everything he needs to do this, provides food for him. And gives him everything he needs to serve him in this, in this work of bringing glory to him. And then this wonderful week, this first week, ends. God declares over his creation for the seventh time on the sixth day, he declares, it's very good. Right? Seven times he says it's a good creation. There's nothing evil in it, nothing wrong with it. It's good. But then at the end of the sixth day, we come to the seventh day. And this is where we turn now in our final heading, God rests. So we've seen God forms, then God fills, finally God rests in chapter 2, 1 through 3. After God's made everything, he rests. Why? Why does God need to rest? The work wasn't hard for him, right? He spoke and it happened. There were no obstacles, nothing exhausting about this, no conflict or struggle. What's this rest? Why is it so important for us to, to note that God rested? It's the rest right, of God entering his kingdom, right? He's built this kingdom for himself. And now he goes and he sits down on the throne and he looks at what he's made. That's, that's the rest. It's the rest of him sitting down and, 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 and entering into his rule over everything that he's made. Right? He created it. Now he consummates it, right? The whole purpose of creation was to be his kingdom. And now he's resting because it is his kingdom. He's the creator and the consummator. He's exalted high over this universe that he's made as its king. That's what this Sabbath rest of God is on day seven. Uh, why, why is this day seven so important for us, right? What's important about this? What's significant about this? Well, notice that this Sabbath day that, that we read about, this day seven that we read about here, doesn't end. All the other days, one through six, there is evening, there is morning, the first day, the second day, the third day. But then we get to day seven. There's no end to day seven. This is telling us that this is not just another day in that first week. Right, man's, man's days are going to progress. They're going to go on with a cycle of, of a day, day after day, um, seven-day cycle. But God has now entered his rest. Right, this is telling us this is the eternal Sabbath. This is, the, this is God's reign. And he doesn't stop from this reign as king. But it's not just something for himself, is it? God is, is, is telling man, he's telling Adam and Eve in the garden to keep this Sabbath as well. Verse 3 tells us that God blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. 
right? As an earthly picture. He, he gives man this day to say, remember that I'm the king and I reign over everything. All space and all time, I made it, it's mine. And I'm, I'm the one who's entered into rest as king, reigning over all of it. And he's telling Adam and Eve in the garden, remember that and you keep that day holy too. Because someday, you're going to come into my Sabbath rest, the eternal rest, Sabbath, Sabbath rest. Sometimes some people argue that the Sabbath day is just relevant under the law of Moses um, because we don't see it repeated as a commandment in the New Testament. But the Sabbath day goes all the way back further than Moses, all the way back to creation itself. It's a creation ordinance, just like marriage, not something that's abrogated. Christ doesn't abrogate creation mandates, does he? No, he keeps them. He doesn't do away with marriage or the Sabbath. What does he do with the Sabbath? Something does happen. He he comes and um, he changes it from the last day to the first day because that's the day of his resurrection. That's the new. That's the that's the dawn of the new creation in Christ, like God there in Genesis two one to three, entering into His rest. Christ in His resurrection has finished His work and enters His eternal rest, victorious over sin and death. The start of the new creation. And Christ gives to His church the Sabbath to continue, to remember. To, to, to be that reminder that the eternal Sabbath rest is still ahead of us and the eternal, eternal Sabbath rest is still coming. And that, that it's by faith in Christ that we will find that, that we ourselves reach that eternal Sabbath rest as well. The Sabbath that God gives us is a reminder of our eternal hope. It's a reminder that, right, God created the world with a purpose. Even before the fall, the purpose was His glorious Sabbath rest. It was all tending towards that on day seven. And in Christ, He's brought us into that purpose. And we are going to enjoy that rest in Him. This can sound like a, the kind of doctrine that's distant and, and not, not um, you know, too far away from the day-to-day struggles of our lives to matter. Um, but this is the promise of heaven, isn't it? This is the promise of eternal life in God's presence. And what a, what a reassurance to know that um, this, is, this, is, this is God's design for us. And He's bringing us into it in Christ. Hebrews 4 which we read uh, together with our Genesis text this evening, it reminds us just how practical this is. It reminds us that, that it's, it's absolutely essential that we are striving diligently to enter the Sabbath rest ahead of us. Hebrews 4 tells us that unless we keep our faith in Christ to preserve us and cause us to persevere in faithfulness, to reach that rest, we won't enter it keeping our eyes on our rest ahead of us, our reward ahead of us, is crucial for us. Hebrews 4.11 says, let us strive, let us work diligently to enter that rest. How do we do that? Hebrews 4 goes on to tell us, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. He says, you have a high priest who's entered that rest. He's passed through the heavens. He's gone there ahead of you. Keep your eyes on Him. Keep trusting in Him. This is how we come to that eternal Sabbath rest. So keep your eyes on the author and finisher, 
the Alpha and the Omega, the Creator and the Consummator, trusting in Him and His grace to keep you and bring you into His rest. Let's pray. Lord God, thank You for all that You've made and all that You've done and Your great power and that You've made it all so that we might glorify and enjoy You in Your eternal Sabbath. We pray that You would give us faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and an unwavering commitment to Him. Let us not backslide or doubt or fall away, but let us strive to enter that rest by His grace. We pray this in our Savior's name. Amen.